Now I'd like to just tell you a little experience that I had and let it, uh, let it speak for itself. I was born and raised here in Southern California, principally raised in a little town known as Alhambra, it's no longer a little town, very fine place. And upon my graduation from high school, I decided that I would like to become an engineer and uh, enrolled at Caltech, California Institute of Technology. I, I tried to enroll there. I, I just didn't have what it took to, uh, to pass the entrance examination. So I went to work and enrolled in Pasadena Junior College. Then with the inception of World War II, they relaxed the standards somewhat. And so I was able to uh, return to that great institution. And uh, while a student there, I had four good friends that I shall never forget. We were pretty much good buddies. They lived on campus, and I lived in Alhambra. It was necessary for me to work. While I was uh, going through school there, I was not carrying a full, a full curriculum. I, uh, I worked from midnight until six in the morning building tires for the Goodrich Rubber Company, and then I went to school uh, five hours a day. While I was there, we heard that Albert Einstein, Dr. Einstein, the famous mathematician, scientist, physicist, was going to speak to the faculty. And so we slipped down in the hall outside of the room where he was addressing the learned men who were assembled together there as a faculty. I remember Dr. Milliken was the president. We stood out in the hallway there for some two and a half hours listening to that that the Dr. Einstein, whom I'm sure all of you, even though he's been dead some several years, I'm sure that all of us here recognize his name. The one thing that I remember, I saw all of the gibberish written on the board. I didn't understand any of his equations, any of his theorems. But one thing that has remained with me, that has stuck with me, was a statement that he made as he was concluding his remarks. I've heard that he was an atheist, but I would have to reject this, uh, this charge on the basis of what he said. He said, gentlemen, the deeper that I dwell into the sciences of this universe, the more firmly do I believe that one God or force or influence has organized all of it for our discovery. And with that, he blew on his chalk and placed it in the trough, and we went back in silence to our dormitory. We had a young fellow in our midst by the name of John V. Dun John Vincent Dunbar. I haven't seen him for a number of years. He shall always remain close to me. He looked something like uh, like Orson Welles, a high forehead with deep-set eyes. He was a short fellow, very brilliant. He had a pure photographic mind. I don't know if you've ever been associated with anyone that had a photographic mind. He could take, you know, well, I happen to have the Holy Bible here, and he could take one page in there and, without exaggeration, look down the page in that manner and close it and recite it verbatim. And I was, uh, we were always trying him out. He was the only individual I ever saw that uh, never did any homework. As a matter of fact, the faculty used to seek him out for counsel. He was brilliant. That's a, that's a strange twist, isn't it? He was, he is brilliant. A tremendous mind. He was, uh, he was 17 years of age as a sophomore. He was almost 18. He was a sophomore at the California Institute of Technology. Today he is a very high-ranking man in Air Force Technical Services. He's back at Wright Field, Dayton, Ohio. Very brilliant man. The Gideon Society, uh, generally in places of public abode and other places where the public gather, generally place a copy of the Bible in one of the drawers. Any of you that have stayed in hotels and motels uh, in traveling have seen copies of the Bible placed there by the Gideon Society. And this particular day we returned to this dormitory and, uh, and he opened the drawer and took out a copy of the Bible. There was quite a motley assembly of us there, than the five of us. I happened to be a Methodist boy, a fellow by the name of Donald Stonebreaker, who was a colonel in the Air Force in charge of meteorological uh, service up in the continent of Greenland. I understand he's soon to be a general. John Stonebreaker was a Presbyterian, Dunbar was a Roman Catholic, Williams was a, an Episcopalian, and one fellow, Glassy, that we had there said there is no God. He was an atheist. So we were quite a, quite a cross-section as far as a religious philosophy is concerned. Dunbar took the Bible out and he opened it to a place 
in the book of Ephesians that impressed all of us, particularly him, where it said there shall be one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. He got to talking about the myriad of churches that existed in the world, and he said, you know, I'm convinced that, uh, that somewhere in the world is the church that the Lord organized. He wasn't altogether uh, completely happy with his church. And with this, he went out in the hallway and he pushed in, about ten minutes later, a big, long blackboard. As I recall now, it was 16, 17 foot long on casters. You've probably seen the type. had three sections to it. You could write on both sides. He pushed it into the room. And then he took out the Bible and he went through it a page at a time for the next, oh, it was about seven and a half or eight weeks, about two months. He went through it a page at a time, taking... Only those instances where our Heavenly Father or where Jesus Christ was speaking or being directly quoted, and he copied down there evidences, classified evidences, where anyone, whether they could work a slide rule or whether they were a doctor, any person could take these evidences and go out and recognize, identify the church that the Lord speaks of in the scriptures. At the end of about then, I remember all during the time, if you dared rub up against this board, you were in real trouble. Dunbar really uh, flipped his cork. At the end of seven and a half or eight weeks, he had all these scriptures, but I'll never forget them. He, uh, he started off by quoting that there should be just one church. He said that he did not, he, he gave us a little dissertation. What he did, he went downstairs and got one of the secretaries, gave her, as I recall, 35 cents apiece, which was a lot of money then. And on five by seven file cards on both sides, she typed up the contents as he had recorded on this blackboard. He gave each one of them to us, and he said, I'd like to make a suggestion now that we take these evidences and we go out and we look for the church. We look for the church that is described in this that I've been able to extract from the scriptures. Well, I was kind of interested. This interested me somewhat. I was happy in my church very active, and I looked it over, and he commenced to discuss with us the fact that he did not want to, to look for the church of Wycliffe, or, or the church of Luther, or the church of Hust, or Hus, or Wesleyan. He was looking for the church of Jesus Christ. He also had up there that uh, he did not want to see anyone, and he had some seven or eight scriptures where the Lord definitely stated that there should not be a paid ministry. He said there should be no hirelings in the flock. Men shall not preach for filthy lucre, and so on and so forth. And he cited the instance where the Lord drove the money changers out of the temple and so on. He had a number of evidences. This was a kind of a new aspect to me, and I didn't know if I liked it or not, because I was quite familiar with the functions of my particular church. I knew that my minister received a salary, and I immediately, because of habit, uh, took some exception with him. He also had down that uh, he wanted those who conducted the affairs of the church to have authority. And he quoted out of the book of Hebrews, the fifth chapter and the fourth verse, wherein the Lord was speaking of the ministry and had made the statement, And no man shall take this honor unto, or and no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God as was Aaron. And John had done some research and found that Aaron was the brother of Moses, that he had been called into the ministry by those who had authority by the laying on of hands. And he had a number of other scriptures uh, that indicated that a man just couldn't uh, suddenly appear on the streets of the Bible and be a representative of the Lord in representing him. He also said that he wanted a church, after having read the scripture, where no man, and he said, Jesus is strong, gentlemen, no man can enter the kingdom of heaven without having been born of the water and of the Spirit. And he said... I have read the story of the baptism of Jesus Christ, first time he ever read it as he went through the scriptures, wherein John had baptized the Lord, and the Lord went down into the water and arose straight forth out of the water. And so he said, we're interested in a church who baptizes by complete immersion. Well, I kind of believed in this, even though that I had seen evidence of baptism by sprinkling, but uh, he made it very adamant and he had everything there to prove it. He said that we must understand the nature of God. He said, in my church we're taught that, uh, and I have been taught the same way, that Jesus Christ is merely our Heavenly Father in an earthly form, that God is a spirit that fills the entire universe. But when he comes to the earth, he is in the form of Jesus Christ. And he said, I reject that. 
We must reject it by reading in the scriptures where the Lord was baptized and came up out of the water, and all those that had gathered there, including those on the banks, I suppose, heard a voice that said, and they all heard it, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, in whom I have glorified my name. And so he said, We can't accept the fact that uh, Jesus Christ is a ventriloquist. There must have been someone else speaking. He must have the information that God and Jesus Christ are two separate persons. Well, I recoiled at this because this was against everything that I had been taught. He went on and drew us a picture on the board of the organization of the church as he found it in the scriptures. He listed all of the offices. He listed all of the offices as named in the scriptures here and specified. And gee, this was amazing to me. I said, well, gee, John, uh, sure, that's the way it was when Jesus Christ was on the earth, but, uh, but not now. And he said, never you mind. We're going out and we're going to look for the perfect organization. Well, with that, he gave us our cards and we arranged our schedule so that we could go out on Wednesday nights and on Sundays. The first time we went out was on a Wednesday evening. I'll never forget this experience. In fact, it's been about three or four months ago I drove by the church wherein we went for our first time. We just drove aimlessly. We went uh, out through South Pasadena, made a left-hand turn on Avenue 64, and here was a little cobblestone church, very beautiful place. They've spoiled it. Uh, Now I see they've painted these cobblestones, and cobblestones just don't take paint. We went in there, and there was a very handsome young minister. As I recall now, he was probably, excuse me, about 32, 34 years of age, very sharp-looking. The thing that uh, caused me to be curious, and I don't recall the name of this church. It was a, quite an odd name that I don't think I've heard since. Seated on the stand of the pulpit next to the minister was a fellow who I recognized who worked at the Goodrich Rubber Company. His name was Frank Campbell. Frank had formerly been a jazz drummer and uh, I, he, has, he told me as we worked together, quite a, a fast liver, a drinker and a carouser, and he uh, had suddenly seen the light and become very active in the church, and it's just coincidence that I happened to know him. He was sitting up there with all of his drums, his cymbals and traps and so on, and believe it or not, and whenever this young minister wanted to emphasize a point, he would point at Frank, and Frank would go through these drums. <laughs> This was our first experience, and Glassy, Junior Glassy, who was with us, uh, who was the atheist, turned and looked at us as if to say, this is, uh, this is religion. Uh, kind of hurt my feelings because we really wanted to convert Glassy to something. He, uh, he, just, uh, he just didn't believe in any type of God. Uh, he had had an experience as a boy in Missouri on the farm where there was a tremendous twister blowing across, and he remembered his father or his grandfather, calling the whole family to kneel in prayer. And they had knelt there and prayed fervently, and the twister had taken their houses, their barns, and uh, killed one of his uncles. And uh, he said if there had been a God, he'd have answered our prayers. We were the only farmhouse out in this big plain, and it went clear out of its way to come around and get us. And, uh, and someone had made the statement that it was an act of God. And he said, well, if this is God and this is the way he acts, I want no part of it. He was really bitter. So we were sweating out glassy some, uh, somewhat. And then the next Sunday, uh, Dunbar insisted that we went to his church. He would happen to be a Roman Catholic, and I make no statements uh, in a derogatory manner concerning that great church. But we went to the Mission San Gabriel. We met a Father Hill there. I think he was uh, Whitey Hill, former All-American at Notre Dame used to really a tackle. We had quite a conversation with him. Dunbar sat there in a very scholarly way, and it was his church, and he went right down the points. I think there were 17 of them, a point at a time. There was only one out of the 17 wherein they qualified, and that was, Dunbar had the statement there that, uh, that uh, they will claim divine authority. Now, this particular church uh, that we were visiting with them, the priest said, yes, we claim divine authority. They didn't classify or they didn't qualify in any one of the other circumstances. We got up ready to leave. The priest said, well, John, don't be worried about it, son. If we're wrong, there are 500 million of us going down together, and this, this really disturbed John Dunbar because, as I say, I don't, I'm not making light of this religion. I'm only recreating that that occurred. He said, gee, this disturbs me. John didn't talk for quite a few minutes. He and I were sitting in the back seat together, and he, uh, 
He said this uh, sounds like security in numbers to me, and he said it, uh, it bothers me a great deal, because he'd found somewhere in the scriptures where the Lord had said that there would be just a handful of his people uh, in ratio with the rest of the earth. We went to my church. I talked them into going to my church by appointment on Sunday afternoon, the, about two weeks from then, two or three weeks from then. We had a little layoff for a while, and uh, we had an appointment with, uh, with the minister of my church. We were standing out in the hall. Uh, Dunbar said, gee, there's no use us going in here, Floyd. And I said, well, why not? I was real proud of my church. We had a lovely building, and uh, I was in with the minister just like that. We were close friends. And he said, well, look at this. And here was the fiscal report standing, hanging on the bulletin board out there. He said, look, this, this man received a salary. He said, look at the card. And I said, well, just a minute. You haven't even heard him yet. We went to your church. Now, let's be courteous around mine. So we went in and talked to the minister, and it all blew up because Dunbar and uh, and Dr. Lee got in a big fight, and uh, and Dr. Uh, it was all over. Dunbar said, look, uh, he quoted him this Hebrews 5 and 4, where no man will take this honor unto himself. He said, how did you get in the ministry, uh, uh, Reverend? He said, oh, I just uh, suddenly uh, got an urge to, to preach the gospel. He said, I'd had a grandfather who talked to me and said, why don't you do it? And I thought about it, and so... I didn't know what else to go into, and I decided to go in and become a minister. And uh, he said, well, uh, you just uh, made the decision yourself? And he said, well, yes. And he said, well, where have you gotten your authority to preach the gospel? And he pointed right to a great big certificate, a big diploma on the wall, and I said, you bet, there it is. And I forget the name of the theological seminary that he went to in the East that he had graduated from, and Dunbar said, no, Reverend, that isn't what I mean. Where did you get your authority? to preach the, the gospel. He said, oh, I, I was ordained at the time of graduation uh, by, uh, I forget the man's name, a doctor on the faculty. He said, and where did he get his authority? And I went back, and Dunbar said, well, gee, uh, you're from our church then. You, uh, I'm a Catholic boy. He said, you started from us. We didn't give you authority to start a new church, and boy, that blew it up. And, uh, and Dr., uh, Dr. Lee said, uh, you are dismissed. And I knew that I wasn't welcome to return. I hadn't said anything. I got on the hall and said, John, you, you're not only messed up in your own church, but now you've messed me up. <laughs> and we left, and we went to several other churches. And you know, the war had started, and I was most eager. I had a friend that was a parachute jumper. He uh, had risen uh, quite rapidly in the service. He was a major back at Fort Benning, Georgia, where they were just starting to jump out of airplanes and parachutes. And he used to write me letters and say, Weston, this is the greatest. And I believed him. I believed him. <laughs> and he said, come back here, and I'll have you a general and nothing flat. And boy, I could see myself in a general's uniform. And, uh, and so I, uh, I went down to Fort MacArthur and said, uh, I'm your boy. And, uh, but I kept my card, and uh, the other fellows uh, intelligently stayed on at Caltech to get a degree. And I went in the service, and... Uh, it just so happened that I didn't get to be a general because two days before I got there, my friend Walker uh, transferred out. And so he hadn't fixed things up for me because I found that I was a buck private with a great big load on my back uh, walking across Georgia and Alabama. But I did get to jump out of airplanes, and, uh, and while there I had a tremendous experience that I, I feel a responsibility to relate to you. I kept my card... I uh, didn't have too many friends there. Uh, I was placed on the cadre, training men uh, coming through Fort Benning. I was a jump master. And uh, I noticed one group of young fellows that had been coming through the parachute school there who were the most outstanding group of young men I have ever met. Uh, they were uh, kind of a rough bunch physically. They were always pushing each other around. I never heard a single swear word come out of their mouths. I never saw any tobacco among them. I never heard any dirty stories. They were rugged physically. I never saw any of them drop out of the runs. We used to have a tremendous uh, training program there. The first day you uh, got in platoon formation and started a run. You ran a minute and walked a minute, ran a minute and walked a minute for an hour. The next day, you'd run two minutes and walk a minute, run two minutes and walk a minute for an hour. And on graduation day, you ran 60 minutes without stopping, and that was the easiest part of the whole course. Is the last one. The first day was the toughest. And we'd start out with something like a class of 1,000, and you'd end up with 200, 250 men. Because once you fell out of a forced run, you were out. That was, that was all that there was in the parachute troops for you, and they'd put you in the infantry and you'd go overseas. 
That alone kept me running. (laughs) One day, one day as I was going toward the drop zone, we were actually, uh, the camp, Fort Benning was in Georgia, but we made all of our parachute jumps over to Alabama. Sister Wright, I see, is here, and she might recall some of this back in there. Uh, We jumped over the Alabama area, and as we were going out one day, the lead man in this stick of 12 men, we had two sticks of 12, was a real solid little fellow that was just real nice. I noticed that he had been kind of the ringleader of this group that I had told you about. I noticed that all of them were from California and Arizona and Nevada, Utah and Idaho, principally, a few of them from Oregon. They were a tremendous bunch. I really, they were comical. Uh, We'd be out in the middle of the night on a force march, and these kids just laughed and ate it up while everyone else was groaning and crying and moaning. These guys seemed to to enjoy it. And... uh, I noticed they were always helpful to others. They'd, these, this group of boys would always come in carrying somebody else's pack or two rifles and so on. They were just those kind of fellows that really impressed me. And this young man, uh, whose name was Jay Hafen, uh, was standing in the door of the plane, and we started talking. I was the jump master, and I had nothing to worry about. I wasn't jumping. And uh, trying to talk above the roar of the engines. And uh, we got to talking about uh, life and so on. You know, you get real serious when you look down and... Realized in a minute you're going to be hanging in the air. And he said, well, you know, in great measure, if you can't answer three questions, now he was yelling this as we were talking, we had about 20 minutes to talk, if you can't answer three questions intelligently and truthfully, in great measure you've wasted your life here upon the earth. About that time the little buzzer went off, the red lights came on, and we got, had to get ready to go. And as I sent them out the door, and he kind of smiled at me. He said, these kids used to laugh when they went out the door with me. I was just the other way around. <laughs> and, uh, boy, I thought about this all the way back to Lawson Field. And we landed, and uh, it bothered me. Three questions. What on earth are they? And the next night, I, uh, I went over to his barracks and looked them up in the training field there. And as I walked in, I heard him say something quick. And all these guys started polishing their gear and their boots. And... Uh, he knew I was coming, and uh, he said, Hi, Sergeant, how are you? And I said, Fine. Jay said, By the way, uh, after we talked about the weather and so on for a while, I said, By the way, uh, what are those three questions? Boy, all these fellows were polishing their boots and watching me. <laughs> oh, oh, he said, Oh, yes, yes. Oh, I know what you're talking about. He knew very well what I was talking about. <laughs> he said, Yeah, Sergeant, he said, uh, Where did you come from? I immediately thought, well, what a crazy question is that? Where did I come from? Why are you here? And where are you going when you leave here? Well, at first I thought, what is he trying to do, pull my leg? And then I got to thinking about it. Where did I come from before I came to the earth? And why am I here? An excellent question. (laughs) And where was I going uh, when I left here? And I'd been thinking about that lately. I had a good buddy who forgot to hook up his parachute, and he... You keep, you know, when you're first starting the jump, you keep your eyes closed, and as you go out the door, after you get out of the initial prop blast, you have no sensation of falling. It's just like standing on the street corner. And if you haven't hooked your parachute up, uh, amazing things happen. And I had, I had had a friend of mine who had forgot to hook his parachute up, you know, they, and he'd gone all the way to the ground, 1,200 feet. And uh, I'd been thinking about uh, what had happened to him. Uh, it was one of the first deaths I'd ever had that was really close to me. He slept uh, right above me in these double bunk beds. And I, I'd had real serious... Uh, I had helped pick him up, and uh, and it really caused me to think. Kind of like uh, popping on the scene of a real bad traffic accident. And, uh, gee, for the next few miles, you're driving very slowly. And then little by little, you know, you start speeding up, and you've forgotten all about it. But this was just a few days afterward, and I was still driving kind of slow. So these questions uh, hit me right where they were intended to hit me. And uh, we had a terrific discussion that night that I just want to recount to you. He asked me some questions that I'd like to ask you. He said, uh, Weston, uh, you believe in God? I said, oh, sure I do. Sure I do. And he was polishing his boots. That's about all you did in the paratroops is polish your boots. And a few apples. And... uh, He said, do you believe that God plays favorites among his children? Hmm, I had to think about that one a minute. I said, heavens no. No, I don't. He said, very good. 
He said, uh, do you believe in the Bible? And I said, yes, I sure do. In fact, I had a little one right on me. I knew we were going to get into a religious discussion. I just felt it. And I had my little tiny New Testament on me. He said, uh, I'm glad you believe in the Bible. He said, can you accept that the Bible is a history book of God's dealings with the people that lived in that area known as Palestine? Hmm, a history book. I never thought. I said, yeah. Yes, I think, I think that's right. I'd made a discovery, you know. He said, very good. He said, can you accept that Jesus Christ was sent here by God to organize a church? Oh, I said, wait just a minute. Uh-huh. He said, well, now think about it. And I thought about it a minute. And thanks to the white card that I had back in my footlocker, I got to thinking about what Dunbar had taught us. And I said, by gosh, that's possible. And he helped me along, didn't he? He said, well, he set up apostles and prophets and bishops and independent branches of the church and so on. I said, yeah, I, I believe that. He said, now, can you accept that uh, the Americans, the American continent was populated in the days of the Lord as we know it now? And I said, why, heavens, no. Any fool knows that that couldn't have been possible. And then he recounted to me the tremendous, the tremendous civilizations, the evidences of big temples and and cities that had been found in South America and other uh, archaeological findings that far surpassed anything on the other side of the ocean. And I thought, well, by gosh, you know, this is possible. And I thought about the vast tribes of Indians, and I said, well, gee, yeah, this could be possible. Yes. This is the end of the recording on this side. Please turn the cassette over. He said, well, can you accept that our father would send his son to a group of people who lived in an area about as long as from Los Angeles to San Diego and about 50 miles wide and turn his back, turn his back on all those children of his who lived in, in the Americas? Well, I said, no, I, I wouldn't buy that. I wouldn't buy that. And he said, as a matter of fact, he didn't. And then he told me the story of, he asked me if I believed in the crucifixion, and I said, I do. He asked me if I believed in the resurrection that three days after the Lord was hung on the cross and died, that three days later on Sunday, that he arose and was seen by many, and I said, yes, I believe in this. And he discussed how the Lord had tarried here and had as I've been associated with many, and when he was preparing to leave, to depart, Peter asked him, Lord, where dost thou go? And he had made a statement that I had never heard of before. He said, other sheep, which are not, and incidentally, all these fellows had gathered around, and they were all closed in on me by that time, listening and shaking their head, yeah, at the emphatic points. I was surrounded. And he said, the Lord had uttered, other sheep, which are not of this fold, have I that he'd said that he was going to minister unto them. And then he asked me the question, who are his sheep? I said, uh, we are. He said, that's right. But of another fold, another location, boy, this uh, light just burst on me at that time. And I'd had enough for the night. And I said, well, gee, thanks, fellas. I hadn't even found out what church they belonged to. I knew they all believed alike, and, uh, but I just hadn't found out as yet. I hadn't had time to ask, and I left, and boy, they watched me go, and uh, the next Sunday, I used to go to town on Sunday, uh, oh, I'd go to the, the church, the Protestant church uh, in uh, the Harmony Church area there, Fort Benning, and then I'd go into town uh, to eat. We had a steakhouse in town called Pat Patterson Steakhouse, it was just over the line in, in Alabama, and it had stilts on the veranda off the kitchen that were down in the Chattahoochee River. You remember that river, Sister Wright? The Chattahoochee River was kind of a muddy river, but it had catfish in it. And there was a big sign on the wall of the restaurant inside that said, The catfish you were eating slept in the river last night. And what would happen, you'd order catfish and they'd go out, the chef would go out on their rear porch, and they had about 10 or 12 drop lines, and he'd fill them. Oh, he had a tug on this one, he'd pull it up, a nice fresh catfish, and he'd skin it right there and fry it. Uh, Fresh, and they'd serve catfish and steak, and we just made a regular uh, gluttons of ourselves every Sunday afternoon uh, eating these big steaks and catfish. All these fellows were on the same bus that I was on as we left the center of Columbus, the town of Columbus, Georgia, heading for Jerry, and I saw them get off, and they looked at me. 
All of them spoke to me, uh, and they got off, and I saw them walk in a little gray stone building. And as we pulled away in the bus, I looked back at them, and I saw the sign, the name on the building. It said, The Church of Jesus Christ. It said something else. I, I couldn't read. The bus was pulling away, and I got to think about The Church of Jesus Christ. You know, that's amazing. Amazing. And I cataloged it in my mind. I was with a couple of other fellows. And then I, uh, I had the opportunity to uh, talk further with these men. And uh, then I, I was injured in the service, and they sent me out here to Santa Barbara to convalesce in a hospital. And uh, using, using my 5 by 7 white file card, I found a church that qualified in every respect. And it was this same Church of Jesus Christ, and I learned that the last words after it were of Latter-day Saints, and I said, well, now, what's this saint's angle? And they said, well, this is merely to identify it and set it apart from the saints, and the Lord definitely states in a number of places in the Scripture that those people who accept his word and associate with his church shall be known as saints. And they just want to differentiate between the church in these days and the original church when the Lord was upon the earth. Well, this added up to me, but then when I found out that they were Mormons, this really shook me up, because, the, well, the only thing I knew about the Mormons is uh, long beards, and, and uh, they lived up in the mountains of Utah, the wilds of Utah, and uh, at school, when I went to Alhambra High School, we'd had a club there called Los Mormones, the Mormons, and I got to thinking about them right away. I knew most of the kids there. And, uh, gee, they were terrific kids, as I recall. And I thought, well, gee, maybe it isn't so bad. Uh, I'll stay here. My first impulse was to get up and run. And I remembered uh, that Dunbar had made a statement and had put it down in the 5 by 7 file card, By their fruits ye shall know them. Now, the Lord had said, You'll be able to recognize my people because of what they do. And so I went into the library and looked up the Mormons in the big Encyclopedia Britannica. I found out some very interesting things about them. Number one, I found out that they had the highest birth rate of any other person, people by per capita, highest number of children, but they had the lowest death rate of any people in the world. They had the highest number of uh, college graduates of any people in the earth. They had the highest um, educational standards. The state of Utah had the highest educational standards of any state in the Union. Um, I had written down some of the things. They had the least number of divorces of any people. These were all, all listed there. They had the most people per capita named in who's who. And all these things started impressing me, started getting to me. And I thought, well, gee, I'm... Uh, Incidentally, they had the largest, and it told me there, they had the largest and oldest women's group called the Relief Society. Uh, largest and oldest women's group in the United States. And so all these things started getting to me, and I thought, why, heaven's sakes, this is all adding up. And I had a chance to sit down with the man who was the bishop in this area. I was in the hospital at the time, and he came through. I met him there. And so I got my 5 by 7 file card out, and I went down point at a time. As I got near the bottom part, my heart commenced to beat harder, and I found out that they qualified in every detail. And I really thought about this. And then they didn't push me. They didn't push me. They handed me a copy of a history book that the Bible prophesied would come forth, that a record would come forth in the latter days. And I read this. It was called the Book of Mormon. And I said, now, just a moment. Uh, in my church, they taught us that the Bible was all there is, that... It should never be added to it and never have anything taken from it. And they showed me right in the Bible where there were some 17 books that, is, that were missing from the Bible that were mentioned there, but you couldn't find. The book of the wars of the Lord and the book of Jasher and the book of Moses and so on were missing. And they showed me scriptures that indicated there would be a record come forth. And that if the Bible was a history book of God's dealings with the people who lived over in the Palestinian area, and he had dealings with them here, sheep of another fold, then he must have kept a history here, and this was it. And they said, now, don't take our word for it, Sergeant, but just read this. And I read a scripture in there that I shall never forget, and it said this, And when ye shall receive these things, 
speaking of that that was contained in this book of scripture, I would exhort you that you would ask God, the Eternal Father, in the name of Christ, if these things are not true. And if ye shall ask with a sincere heart, with real intent, having faith in Christ, he will manifest the truth of it unto you by the power of the Holy Ghost. I read this and I read it, and it just amazed me that I didn't have to take anybody's word for it, that it was a personal issue. And then the one thing that always bothered me was that my church had taught me that the heavens were sealed. And I thought, this isn't fair, that Father would play favorites among his children, that he would have prophets of God. I had been taught about many of them and believed in them. Moses and Abraham and Enoch, Jeremiah and others who, were, who I knew were prophets. I had studied that that they had uttered. But none today. Why, why is it that Father would, uh, would play favorites and, and put these prophets of God who's, uh, who spoke his word among his people then and none today? That the heavens were sealed, that no longer did he speak to us. And then they taught me something. They said, we have good news for you, my friend. The heavens are not sealed. They are not sealed. There is, God has spoken on the earth today. He has appeared and introduced his son as he, has, as he has done in other dispensations. And I said, wait a minute. Who's ever seen God? Oh, and they showed me out of the scriptures that God had walked and talked with Adam, that Moses had talked with God face to face, that God had introduced his son at the baptismal font of the Lord in the, in the River Jordan. They showed me evidence of the appearance of Jesus Christ on this, the American continent, after he had left Peter, saying, Sheep of another fold have I. A beautiful description of when the Lord had appeared here, and that Father's voice had introduced him at this occasion, and that in these last days that God had appeared on this, the American continent, and introduced his Son, and restored the church and the kingdom to the earth as he promised. And I really got excited. Even though I was fighting it, I really got excited. Well, to make a long story short, because it qualified to the card, the five by seven file card that I had faith in, because it rang true to me, I accepted it. And one of the first meetings that I attended of the church was a quarterly conference, just as we have conducted today. It was held in what is now the Burbank Stake Center, and I got all excited when I heard about this stake center. I thought, oh boy, <laughs> medium well for me. But then I discovered they still spelled it a different way. It was S-T-A-K-E. And you got food there all right, but it wasn't of the type that you chewed up. And when I walked into this stake center in my uniform, who do you think was one of the first persons I saw but John Dunbar? And here he stood in the uniform of a captain, an Air Force captain, and he looked at me and said, well, Floyd, what are you? And I said, what are you doing here? We said, this is my church. And I said, well, brother, me too. The only time that we had ever corresponded during the several years we were in the service is when Dunbar sent us all a card telling us that Glassy, who was a P-40 fighter pilot, had gone down in flames over North Africa when they were strafing Rommel and had lost his life. That's the only time we ever commune with one another. Never saw each other except on this one occasion, and all four of us, as a result of our five-by-seven card, all four of us ended up in the same church. Now, to me, this is more than just a coincidental experience. All of these men are active in the church today. I rarely, rarely, in fact, I haven't seen Stonebreaker and Williams for a number of years, but they're all in the church. And I would present this to you I would present this to you, hoping that it would be of interest to you in recognizing that God does not play favorites among his children, that he has spoken upon the earth in these last days. And this is nothing unusual. This is the way the Lord planned it. It's all right in the scriptures. Now, you know, I came back from the service, and I had always wanted to be a police officer. Born and raised here, and I just wanted to be a police officer, and I found myself in a bright, shiny uniform uh, directing traffic downtown, and a uh, traffic cop. And uh, I used to stand there and thinking how stupid people were that if, if I weren't standing there, it made me feel kind of important that all of them would get killed because they didn't know red from green, and uh, I had to help them. 
You know, it's an amazing thing. The Lord has traffic cops in the church. In his church, he has traffic cops. They aren't uh, in a distinctive uniform. They're kind of plain clothesmen, as a matter of fact. And they stand and show people which way to go. I'm often reminded of them. Uh, I've never been much on poetry, but uh, I've always remembered a poem that I heard expressed one time that uh, really impressed me. And I'd like to present it to you, if I may, if I can recall it. He stood by the crossroads, all alone, the sunlight in his face. He had no thought for the world unknown. He was set for a manly race. But the road stretched east and the road stretched west, and the lad knew not which road was best. So he chose the road that led him down, and he lost the race and the victor's crown. He was caught at last in an angry snare because no one stood at the crossroads there to show him the, the better way. Another day at this selfsame place, a lad with high hope stood. He, too, was set for the manly race. He, too, was seeking the things that are good. But one was there who the roads did know, and that one did show him which way to go. Today he walks the highways fair because one stood at the crossroads there to show him the better way. In the Church of Jesus Christ in these latter days, there is no such thing as a paid ministry. This is something that really impressed me. No one receives a cent for anything that they do in the church. This really impressed me. This was the first point on my, uh, on my list, as I recalled, as I recounted. And you know, all of the young men who are worthy in the church and the young women, the young men at 19 years of age, are called by those in authority, as Aaron was, the brother of Moses, and by the laying on of hands and the sustaining of the members of the church, go into the mission field as traffic cops, if you please. Oh, they're formerly known as elders, as missionaries. You have a number of them among you this evening. I'd like to introduce them, if I may, if I may, so that you can see what these traffic cops look like. As a matter of fact, they do stand at the crossroad, and they do show you which way to go. And you know... I made the statement that this could well be one of the most important meetings that you'll ever attend. You know, these men, these traffic officers, I never liked being called a cop in the years I spent in the job. These, when someone called me officer, why, that was different. They have a, some cards with them. I'm going to be, you know, we should never be mealy-mouthed about the truth. Those of you who are not members of the church who are here have probably guessed by this time that... Uh, Yes, we're trying to convert you. <laughs> the Lord planned it this way. The Lord planned it this way. And I have never seen he or any of his followers who knew of him that were ever mealy-mouthed about the truth. Many of them stood and were stoned and spit upon while they told of the truth. And true enough, you don't have to take our word for it, but at any rate... I found that this church that I have become associated with was the only organization I'd ever contacted who had a message as to specifically what they believed in. It was the most exciting message I ever heard. I still get excited when I hear it. You can afford yourself that opportunity with no pressure. If they stay longer than 20 minutes, it'll be because you invite them to. But let me advise you, as one who was not raised in this church, don't you ever leave the earth without having heard this message, and what greater opportunity than now? And it's not a problem hearing it, it's only a process. These traffic officers have cards on them. Now take my advice. Don't leave this meeting without getting your name and your address and your telephone number on these cards. I'd like to introduce you to these traffic officers, these elders of Israel, and believe me, there is no greater title that can be vested in man, and as I recalled Again, to you, it must be bestowed by the laying on of hands by those in authority. There is no greater title, king, magistrate, ruler, 
judge, officer, whatever it is, no greater title than elder of Israel. May I introduce you to some elders of Israel? They have a supervisor here with them. They're from the California Mission, and I'd like to present them to you this time. Elder Daryl Foote from Nampa, Idaho. Idaho. I might, would you remain standing, Elder Foote? I might say that these elders are here on their own time and their own money for two years of their life. Now, you tell me, outside of the Lord's work, where you can find young men and young women who will give unselfishly of their time and their talents and their money. Elder Wayne Atkinson from Provo, Utah. Elder Atkinson, over here. Thank you, elders. Will you be seated? Now, I've taken long enough. I hope that I've given you my message. I didn't tell you about something that really impressed me when I was in the service. While I was about ready to make this decision, I read something in the Sunday Los Angeles uh, Examiner, it was, the American Weekly section. It was written by a war correspondent. I kept this for a long time until I folded so much it tore apart. It was written by a war correspondent who had an Italian-sounding name. I wish I always remembered his name, and I can't recall it now, but it ended in an O, and he was from New York City. He said that he had had a tremendous experience, that he was walking down the beach at Waukakee, and he wanted to tell his audience, his readers, about a tremendous experience that he'd had. He said that he had been assigned to a division of Marines, I think it was the first division as I recall, in the staging area where they were preparing for an invasion, I, and I think it was Tarawa, and that he had watched these men in their stages of training, he had written articles about them, and it was his good fortune, and I wonder about this, to participate in them, with them in the invasion of Tarawa. He said as he sat hunched down in this little landing in this invasion barge, this LCI, looking around at the men who were sitting there, who may, many of them would not be alive in about ten minutes from then, he had his camera with him, he had his pad and his pencil, no rifle, he was there to cover it for the people of America and to report to them. As he looked around, he said that he was particularly impressed by a couple of young men who sat next to each other and were smiling at each other. And just before they ground up on the coral reef, these young men, whom he had paid particular attention to for the few weeks he'd been with them because they always drank milk and they were clean men, no tobacco and so on, the same description I gave you from Fort Benning, Georgia, just as they ground up on the reef, these young men shook hands and the younger of the two took off first and jumped up on the side of the invasion barge and was just ready to go over in the water when he incurred a direct hit that literally disemboweled him. And that means that it just literally took him in half and he went down in the water and his blood was washing in the surf there. His buddy looked at him and jumped overboard and grabbed on him in the surf, in the tide, and commenced working his way under heavy fire toward the beach. And with that, this correspondent said that... Uh, and his, I remember his last name now was Capra, C-A-P-R-A, -A, Robert Capra, Capra, said that the fire was so tremendous he was looking out for his own skin, he lost track of him. The next he knew he was laying on the beach, or thankful that there was some jutting up of coral there to protect him, he said he saw the strangest thing he had ever seen. He saw the one elder companion of these two get on his knees and put his hands on this young man's head and command in the name of Jesus Christ, that his companion, who was visibly gone, would remain alive until he got the proper first aid. And Capra thought to himself, he recounted there in a few words, that this guy must be one of those religious quacks praying over a dead body. And then a new paragraph, he said, Today I'm walking on the beach at Waukakee with these two young men. And I don't know what manner of men they are, but one thing I know for sure, en route to my home in New York City, I'm going through Salt Lake. I didn't say what religious sect they were, but every Latter-day Saint and everyone who knew anything about the church knew. I knew. Now, I would like you to know this. I wouldn't, at a time like this, stand here and lie to you. I want you to know that I have investigated this carefully that I have gotten off by myself. I'm just not a joiner. 
I've gotten off by myself, and I have asked my Heavenly Father if this is true. And I was very sincere. I had real intent, and I had faith in Jesus Christ. And I want you to know that I, as many other hundreds of thousands of people have done, I received an answer. Oh, I don't mean to imply that a big brass band pulled up and a man with a top silk hat stepped out and said, Floyd, it's true. But I knew that it was true. Into my heart was cast a message. And I, for myself, can say that I know that it's true, that God has spoken upon the earth, that he sent his son, our elder brother, Jesus Christ, here with instructions on organizing a church. He organized it. He was crucified and hung on the cross, ultimately was resurrected, departed and came to this land, organized the church here. That because in the old country over there, because the followers of the church of Jesus Christ were stoned and spit upon and fed to the lions and the gladiators until there were a handful of them left, I'm convinced that Father became most unhappy with the treatment and the revilement that his followers received at that time, and he withdrew the gospel from the earth. And immediately, if you'll read in your history books, the earth plunged into the dark ages, known as the great apostasy. But he gave a promise that in the last days an angel would fly forth from the midst of heaven with the everlasting gospel to proclaim unto all those that dwell on the earth, every nation and kindred and tongue and people. And my testimony to you our testimony to you is that angel has flown forth. The gospel has been restored. God has spoken to us in these last days. This is my testimony. I've never seen Jesus Christ, and maybe I never will. But if I do, and I'm standing right next to him, and I know that it is him, no more will I know then than I know now that he lives. Now, please don't leave the earth until you have taken of your opportunity to gain this knowledge. God bless you in your hearts and in your homes that you will welcome these elders. Maybe all of your training cries out against it, but let your heart direct you in this instance. And may God bless you in your hearts that the gospel will sound good to you, I would pray for you and for me to this end and bear you my testimony of these things in the name of Jesus Christ.